Hello and welcome to the next edition of MDD's Claims Leadership Interviews. With me today, I have Mike East from QBE. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Barry. I hope you're well. Yeah, very well. Very happy to have you in the victim seat to explore your darkest secrets. So we'll see how we get on. I'm going to start at the beginning, Mike, which is always to find out how you came to be in the insurance industry. So tell us your story. Well, like most people, I guess, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I went to university very briefly to Brighton to do building engineering and management because I'd worked on a building site to get money up to go traveling around the world. And I thought that sounded like a bit of a giggle. So I did that for about two terms and then realized that I probably wasn't cut out for the university life. So tough conversation with the parents, left the university. And the way I got into insurance is I'm third generation East in the business. My grandfather was a broker, my father was a broker, and they seemed to do all right and had a lot of fun. So I decided that I'd I'd give that a go. So I interviewed a number of places and eventually got a job in the policy wording department at HSBC Financial Insurance Institutions, where I think my first job was print sticking slip clauses, photocopy clauses into slip policies as as my first introduction to insurance. So yeah, I fell into it, but generationally a third one. I am the first one to go on the underwriting side and away from the broking side would be what, what I'd say about that, but fell into it very like many people. So tell me, is the legacy going to continue then? All I want for my kids is for them to be happy, enjoy the job that they do. If they end up in insurance, they do. I won't be encouraging it. Okay. All right. So today you're the international claims leader at QBE. Can you tell us what that entails? Sure. So there's a very broad portfolio. So I look after any and all claims that are written out of our European operations function and also our Asia function, which together is the international division. So there's about 700 people in the claims function for that division. And it's a genuinely uh, global capability that we have. We have people sitting in Denver, in Canada and Australia, clearly in the Asian countries that we do of Hong Kong, Singapore, Vietnam and uh, Malaysia. And then also our European continental business as well, sitting in the Nordics, Italy, France, Germany, Spain, Ireland, around the continental Europe. And then our main hub here in the UK is up in Leeds, where we have the majority of our people, but also in in London and Chelmsford. We ride a very, very broad range of lines of business. So it can be anything from a small motor accident right up to um, energy losses globally. So very fortunate to run the function. I have a great team and a great group of people who are passionate about what they do and how they look to help and serve customers around the globe. So really what it entails for me is is to make sure that I'm leading the team in a way that they understand, that the strategy is clear, and then really let them get on with it. I'm, I'm sure we'll come on to this later about leadership, but very much for me it's about empowering the people to do their best work across the globe. So it's a busy time. The time zones can be challenging to deal with when you're dealing with Asia and, and across to the U.S., but I enjoy it. It's exciting. You never know really what's going to happen the next day and anything that's on the front of the papers around weather incidents or major casualties. It's, it's probably something that we've got to grapple with, but it's great that I've got the great technical capability in my team and to leverage off that globally. So I guess, Mike, what you're telling us is you're a pretty busy guy. Tell us a bit more about QBE. What's it like working for them? Yeah, it's fantastic. I really enjoy it. When I, when I moved to QBE, my goal uh, was really to move to a place that was a little more global, a little bigger, a little uglier, a little more challenging than I had, which was really in the Lloyd's environment, because I wanted to learn, I wanted to understand what was out there in the insurance market. I've been quite closed just in the Lloyd's arena for, for many, many, many years. 
Um, so I really enjoy the global nature of it. It has its challenges, right? We are a global organization. We have very, very different regulatory environments that we have to manage, we have to deal with. But what I really like working, especially very, uh, very recently with Andrew Horton joining as our, our new group CEO, is a real clarity of vision, a real clarity of purpose uh, that we've rolled out very recently. You know, it's about a more resilient future and to be a real consistent and innovative risk partner for our customers and our brokers. And that really, for me, helps me to determine and to understand really the direction of the organization, the role that I have to play in terms of the enterprise, and really being able to focus on the things that matter. Because we can all get distracted by many, many different things that come across our desk and actually having a real purpose and being purpose-led, which is what I should say, because lots of organizations have purpose, but are they really led by that? And I really feel like this is a, a, a great new chapter and this purpose and vision is going to be around for, for a while, right? We're not going to change it. And then under, underlying that, there's a number of strategic initiatives that we're looking to drive, which, again, helps us really understand where we should play. So it's around our people, our culture, how we modernize our business, how we bring the enterprise together, break those silos down, and make sure that QB is very consistent the way it shows up globally. Yeah, how do we optimize our portfolio, especially in this world of you know, significant inflation, of challenges globally? the environment of supply chain. So how do we really optimize our portfolio for the future using data and analytics to help drive that capability across the business? And also that sustainable growth, right? We're in growth mode now, as most of the market are, which has been different really from probably the the, the softer market that we've seen and, and really being able to make sure that our people understand that we want to grow. We want to grow sustainably. We want to grow profitably. So it's very, very clear for me now with QB about what its purpose is, what its vision and the role that I can play, both within my function, but also in the division that I help to look and run, but also where we reach out to major trading partners and customers. There's a very clear understanding of where we want to go, what we want to be and how we think we can make the world a little bit more resilient. Uh, And that's a really important aspect for us. So I'm delighted with where we are at QB at the moment um, and very clear for me about where we're going forward. Well, I've got to say, there's one thing that's just impressed me about what you've just said. It's the passion that you've just displayed about what you're trying to do as a business. And when leadership talks with that passion, you know, that's a fantastic thing, because I think that permeates through the whole organization. So look, let's talk about some of the claims challenges that are out there. What, What do you see as the biggest claims challenges? Oh, I think it's about talent, Barry. I really do. I think that as an industry, we've underinvested in talent. We've under underinvested in in training, in development, uh, and also probably the skills that are needed for the future. Being a great technical claims handler you know, is really important, but actually being able to have those conversations with customers, being able to drive claims to resolution being able to have those negotiation skills are really, really important. So I think one of the biggest challenges, how do we get the claims environment of something that's a role or a career that people are passionate about? How do we make sure that people understand what we do in the claims world? Because we talk about it being claims, but actually we do so much more. There's fraud, there's data and analytics, there's large claims, there's negotiation. The world in which we occupy, I think actually calling it claims uh, uh, does it a disservice. And I think being able to open up people's eyes to what you can do, it's hugely able to help uh, and support people through moments of crisis. We just won an award of the Insurance Times Claims Excellence Award for rehabilitation of getting people back from injury and back into work, really aligned to that resilience of a future and making sure that people can get back to work. 
Yeah, we've done that in a digital way. And, and those are things that you'd never probably associate with the word claims. So really, I think selling or telling our story about what the capabilities are, what the career opportunities are, uh, what uh, interesting things you get involved in. We've got exposure in the Russia-Ukraine war, right? These are really novel, incredible things that are happening in our world where we can make a difference. So I think the challenge is how do we attract talent in? How do we tell our story about what capabilities, what opportunities there are within the claims world? And I think that's probably one of the biggest challenges we have today. I totally agree. I just find it very impressive what you have to say about these challenges. So you're a leader. Tell me what it is about being a leader that you enjoy most. That's really quite a straightforward one for me, Barry. What I enjoy most is seeing my people flourish and empowering them. My job really is to set the direction, set the strategy, what the red lines are you know, beyond which we don't want to go, and then say to people, how would you do this? I think top-down management and top-down uh, that's not really leadership, right? You really need to hear everybody's voice. You actually need to give the challenge or the solution, solving capabilities of the people who are closest to the closest to the action. It's their job. It's their career. It's what they do day to day. Don't sit at the top of an organization without hearing from other people and think that you know what the solutions are, because I'm absolutely certain if you do that, you will miss huge opportunities and you'll probably set yourself backwards. So for me, I'm about empowering, setting clear strategy. And then every now and again, right, I've got to break down some barriers, right? I've got to make sure that we're able to do what we can do. And I've also got to make sure that the performance of the organization and what we want to achieve is being consistently applied and delivered. But part of that for me is, whilst I've got about 700 people in the claims function, actually, all I need is my top 10 leadership to really understand what my strategy is. They understand that they can go into their teams and really drive that capability. So what do I enjoy most? Seeing our people develop and for them to be at the forefront of how we change and how we innovate. Because if I do it, I'll get it wrong. And that's not the right way to lead. Well, you sold me, Mike. I want to come and work for you. Have you got any jobs going? I think you're overqualified, Barry. <laughs> I don't know about that. That's very kind of you to say that. So if there's one thing I really recognize QB as, and that is innovators, I see you as leading innovators in the marketplace, certainly around claims. So is this by design or is this just sort of lucky ideas that sort of come out of discussions? What, what's going on? No, it's completely by design. We use an agile claims change methodology we have what's called a claims design authority, and we have some capability within each of the particular functions within claims who are there to really get ideation around things that we could do differently. Those then get funneled into the claims design authority. They get prioritized for the biggest bang for our buck, and then they get put into areas where we would do the sprints to make sure that those changes go through. So that's really on the sprint methodology. And it's important that we do automate. It's important that these aren't dirty words in terms of what we want to do. We have to get to a place where we're taking what we'd like to call the administrivia away from the claims handlers, right? As much as possible. And we've done some great work in automation. You know, I think there's about you know, 30,000 claims that we now sort of process pretty much straight through some of the simple ones that we do. But we're on the journey to automate so we can actually give our people time to add more value to customers and get closer to our customers. So it's utterly by design. And my problem actually in the claims world here isn't 
that people don't want to change. Actually, we've got the position where people want to change more quickly than actually we can do it. So we need to make sure actually we use our operating principles that we have against the purpose and the vision to drive what those changes should be. Sure, we've got some things that we need to do from a regulatory standpoint or maybe some some fires that need putting out, but we can pivot really quickly to move our capability to deal with that. So we're beyond robotics really now. Robotics was a really good start, but that's not a way that's sustainable. Really automation embedded within your key technologies is the really critical part of where we're going now. So how do we build that in? Even you know, So the automation is the guys at the front end don't even know it's happening, right? They're doing work that adds value, not work that needs doing. And, and that's really our drive to, to do that. And then that allows people to improve their skills of customer, of capability, of data, of analytics. So definitely by design, but more nudge theory, right? Big, big, big bang projects are challenging. They're difficult. They take a lot of resource. And whilst we're not adverse to doing that, where the project is the correct one, actually that incremental change, one inch at a time, 1% better at a time, just creates the muscle, the environment that we're doing things better, uh, that we're listening and we're prioritizing for the for the best bang for our buck. So I'm, I'm very fortunate. I get challenged a lot by my team and constructively about what can we do differently? Where can we go next? And how can we improve our offering? So it, it's a challenge in that way, but a challenge I relish. Okay, so you, you've touched on change there. You know, I'm really interested in your read on change in claims management over the last couple of decades. So what do you see as really the, the big positive changes that have taken place? I'm not sure I can really point to any big positive changes that have taken place, Barry. What I think I can talk around is the market. And actually, when the claims community come together and work together, actually, I, I struggle to think of any other function, especially within the Lloyd's environment of a community coming together to, to solve problems. When I was chair of the Lloyd's Market Association Claims Committee, we all came together for the CTP program. We actually had to challenge a number of COOs and CEOs around what we wanted as a claims community to spend the money in the Bureau to get what we wanted in terms of faster claims payments through the Bureau. So actually, I think that community really drives change well. And and actually, I do give credit to the LMA for creating the committee and giving it some teeth, giving it some, some profile to really bring that community together and and Lloyd's as well, right around the corporation. So I I, I can't really point to any super big change, but what I can point to is a desire to move at pace. I I think one of the challenges that we've had in the overall position of market modernization is, is, is claims have had a vision for this for quite some time. And I'm really hopeful that the future at Lloyd's and the blueprint will help us to deliver on the commitments that I think the market made to itself a few years ago. The pace, and I know it's difficult, I know it's challenging, but I really think we need now to do that big change, that big modernisation. Otherwise, I do fear that London has, uh, uh, has a risk of being left behind. Really interesting, Mike. Coming back to QBE for a second, can you tell us about any plans that you have for the future that, that excite you? Yeah, well, I'll go back to sort of some of those strategic initiatives that we talked around. So we've got the purpose and the vision, which are very exciting, which is almost our North Star for where we want to head to. But I think bringing the enterprise together is one that really does excite me. Yeah, we write similar lines of business across our three divisions, which is international North America and Australia Pacific. We definitely must have capability in each of those areas where we can help each other. And actually, I think it's just creating the environment where people reach out, understand who they can go to the organization, 
to get help, to get assistance, to understand better and really create some of those communities of practice where we can share best practice, we can really drive that consistency uh, of approach for our customers. That really does excite me around the power of the organisation, where it makes sense. What I don't think the right thing to do is to make consistency the rule for consistency's stake. We have different regulatory environments, we have different masters that we have to fulfil within those different divisions. But putting aside that I work in this jurisdiction or that jurisdiction, learning, developing, understanding what the organisation can do can only make us better, can only make us more connected. And I think that means we show up to our customers and our brokers in a far more consistent way, which I think is absolutely what we get the feedback. Great consistency and really important communication. So that's the stuff that really excites me and what what I look, look to bring together. I think we innovate everywhere across the globe do we really understand what those innovations might mean because one organization's business as usual is another part of the business's innovation so let's just share those lessons let's reuse what we can and create those connections to really show up in a consistent way Uh, and that's what excites me about the future i totally agree with a lot of what you had to say there so moving on mike tell me what do you think makes a great claims handler So Barry, we can teach technical skills, right, about how contracts work. We have great procurement for third parties that help us, either through loss adjusters, forensic accountants, of course, legal advisors. But fundamentally, what I think makes a great claims handler is their ability to communicate effectively. Time and time and time again, we hear that can't get hold of the right person, it's difficult to understand where the claim is in the process. And you know, some of the modernization that I talked about regarding London market should help with that. But actually, if you're really proud of what you want to do and you want to give really great customer service, even if it's not news that a customer wants to hear, sometimes that happens. So the courage, the bravery, the support that you feel as an organization And I think spending more time on that communication element is only going to be more critical. And we need to find ways to communicate in different ways. So the omni-channel capability, we we have web chat now that we use for some of our businesses up in Leeds. And actually, what we found for web chat is the brokers engage with that really, really well. The service and and the turnaround time is in seconds rather than you get an email you get round to it in 15 minutes and then you answer it. So that's a really good way to do it. And the interesting behavioral dynamic around that is the conversation in web chat is far more colloquial than it would be over email. So you start building relationships with people through different forums. So email has its place, but I don't think there's anything that serves better and being truly trustworthy and in that phone call doing it early, if it's going to be bad news uh, or news that people don't want to hear, make sure that you're engaging with the broker. Make sure that you're engaging with the underwriter. Make sure that you get a perspective from other people and just communicate significantly more than you think. And that's what that's what I encourage great claims handlers to do. If you think you're doing enough, add another 50% to it because you can never do more than that. Well, I'm going to agree with you on that. There's no doubt in in my mind that you can be the best technical claims guy in the world, but if you can't communicate effectively, you can destroy relationships, even though what you're saying is completely right. You just got to be able to manage those conversations and help people understand why you're getting to where you're getting to. So let's get back to you a little bit now and and talk about your career and the and the 
greatest influences on it and why. So who have those people been? Barry, I think the greatest influences for me have been looking at leaders that I've been involved with and realising what not to do. So I'm not going to put any names out there, but actually what we need right now is more empathy, more focus on well-being, noticing if people are struggling, uh, not just what I would say in the old days, which was task-based, task-based, task-based. So I feel that I've been shaped as a leader far more about behaviours that I've looked at and say, I don't want to be that. Mm. I don't want to show up in that way. I've had lots of people who who have influenced me uh, on, on individual claims or individual circumstances and some of the significant claims environments that we've been through. And that could be from, uh, from World Trade Center to the IPO Enron Laddering Cape challenges in, in the early 2000s, deep water. So lots of those individual matters where the market has come together brilliantly and, and we've collaborated and worked out really challenging problems and, uh, and issues. But in terms of, for me, uh, as an influence of what I do today is how do I engage with people in a way that I think can coach them in a way to get the best out of them rather than direct from the top? Yeah, again, a very interesting answer. And one I agree with, you know, I look back at my career and I absolutely learned from people in terms of what I didn't think they were doing right. And it led me to develop my own style because I wanted to do better. And hopefully I did that. Um, And hopefully you're doing it as well. So in terms of high points and low points in your career, have you got any that you want to share with the audience that that you think they'd be interested in? Yeah, I I guess for me, high points, probably one of the high points is the chair of the LMA Claims Committee. Jeremy Pynchon was the person before me and, and he was then leaving to go to Hiscox in Bermuda. I forget what age I was at the time, but I felt as though I could do a job in that environment. I had a little bit of imposter syndrome, right, about the age I was and what experience I had and the other people who sat around the table. So I went and chatted with Jeremy before I sort of threw my hat into the ring and said, you know, do you think I can do this? What advice would you give? And he was great in terms of the advice and felt that I could. So putting my hat into the ring for that, being supported by the community around me, Having the opportunity at that stage to sit down with Tom Bolt uh, as the Lloyd's Performance Director every couple of weeks and talk about claims and you know sat around that table with David Lang and myself and, and Tim Wilcox at the time. So it really felt as though that claims was high on the agenda and, and it was being recognised and understood. We went through the Claims Transformation Programme, which was significant. So I really feel, I, I hope that through that leadership of that committee, but with a huge support from the people around that table, that we made the market a better place at that time, especially with the advent of ECF, which was not an insignificant change program for the market in totality. As I said, there's been examples of challenging claims environments of, say, laddering Welcome Enron was a pretty intense time when that took place around the financial lines environment. But probably that one for me, I guess I felt like I had something to offer I could do something a little wider than just in my organization and could help lead and drive and market change. So I'd probably call that one out as being the high point. If I do have low points, which I do, nothing really stick out barriers being you know, hugely significant in my career. I've taken risks. I've taken chances to do different things, but none of which I regret. And I've always learned something from them. Well, I can remember from my time with Lieber, 
that as a group of brokers sitting around the table, we were all very impressed with what was going on. And you must take a lot of credit for that. So, you know, good for you, Mike. If you're demonstrating one thing to me today, it's what a thoughtful leader you are. And you do things by design, not by gut feel. And there are two different sorts of leaders. There's the gut feel who sort of do things because it feels like the right thing to do. And then there's the others who put a lot of design into it and you fall very much under the by design label. So tell me what, what sort of aspirations have you got for the future? Again, very simple for me, Barry. I think I work hard. I, I Hopefully I work smart. But my aspirations really for the future is whatever I do, you know, tomorrow needs to be better than today. So I leave a position where we're always moving forward. We're always trying to solve challenges. I think problem solving is going to be one of the really hot skills of the future. We'll get the data, we'll get the automation. The world is a challenging place. So understanding where those problems are, understanding where the opportunities are, is all I really want to do. And my other aspiration is leave whatever I do in a better place than I found it and make sure that I've got succession beneath me that can carry that on in a seamless way. Well, I think there's quite a lot of gas left in the tank with you, Mike. So it's not going to happen. Mr. QBE, don't worry. He's not going anytime soon. It's quite a long way to go. But, you know, good to hear what you're thinking about for the future. So just to get outside of work now, tell, tell me what do you enjoy doing outside of work? From a family point of view, I've got three kids, uh, a dog and a gorgeous wife, Sarah. So there's still quite a lot of running around after them during the weekends, especially my daughter. She's huge into her karate. She competed a few world championships for her age bracket and so successful. In it. So, so yeah, we drive her back and forward to Kew, uh, where she does her karate. And I enjoy seeing her success in that. We're in a slightly interesting stage of life at the moment. My eldest is doing A-level, so he'll be off to university, hopefully, in September and my and my daughter's doing GCSEs and my uh, my youngest son is doing you know, year one of secondary school tests. So the anxiety level in the East household is a little higher than otherwise it would normally be. Mm. But I enjoy seeing them succeed. I enjoy the walking the dog. It's very relaxing for me. It's time to get out and everyone needs space and well-being. As you know, Barry, I'm, I'm very keen to chase a little white ball around a field, and but normally in the trees and in the bunkers. So I, I really enjoy the golf and my of course, I'm a member of it. It's three minutes drive up the road. So especially in the summertime now, yeah, being able to go up there and play with my mates and just enjoy nature and enjoy a little bit of time out is very important to me. So yeah, I really enjoyed doing that. In fact, I was very lucky enough this year to whiz over to the Masters in Augusta. So you know, g- golf plays quite a high percentage of what I like to do outside of work and, and then supporting the family. Well, I did look out for you in the crowd, but I, I couldn't see you. There were rather a lot of people there, so it didn't surprise me that I couldn't spot you. But isn't it amazing the opportunities that kids have these days to do things and find stuff that they're good at and that they want to do? So your daughter's karate. My son did weightlifting. You know, he was a skinny little thing, but he became a champion weightlifter and was going all over Europe weightlifting. I found it amazing, but I have to say possibly one of the most boring sports to watch in the world. But, you know, that's what rocked his boat. Well, karate is a similar thing in competitions. You, you sit there for two days and you wait for six and a half minutes for the competition. But uh, it, it's great to see them excel and enjoy and, and be really passionate at this early age about something. So, uh, yeah, I, I love it. Great. So now we're going to do the fun bit. It's a quick test. Everybody has to go through this. One of the secrets is to not try and give me long and lengthy answers about why you've picked a particular response. 
in my book, there are right and wrong answers. So we'll see how well you do. So rugby or football? Rugby. Yeah, good answer. TV or radio? TV, man. TV. I mean, I have had people on this who just don't have a TV. I don't want to mention names like John Sargent, but, you know, those people I, I do worry about. BBC or ITV? BBC, sir. Excellent. Oh, man after my own heart. A testy one, meat or veg? Don't say veg. Well, I'm definitely, <laughs> I'm definitely in the meat category. However, my daughter is, is, uh, is vegetarian now. Uh, and we have at least two vegetarian meals a week. So we're trying to do our bit. But choice is meat. Okay. So when your daughter listens to this, she's going to be really impressed that you picked on the meat. Okay. Let's move on. Work or holidays? And I want the honest answer here. Work or holidays? Well, if I have to choose one, it's holidays and specifically skiing would be my choice. But just as a slightly longer answer is, actually, I, I thoroughly enjoy doing what I do in work. And I thoroughly enjoy doing what I do on holidays. and. I guess, candy, unless my numbers have come up in any lottery, right? Which you, know, you need to do the work to get the holidays. And, and actually, I think there's a bit of a symbiotic relationship between those two things. So if, if you had made me choose, it would be holiday and skiing, but I like both. I think the CEO of QBE is going to be happy with that answer. We'll, we'll take that one. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> Lloyds or companies? So I can do far more innovation in my company world and I can do it faster. So actually, at this stage of what we want to do in terms of the innovation for us is companies for me. Good answer, I think. Tricky one, 1980s or 2020s? And I know you were alive in the 1980s. No, I was around. It's a tough one, this, but I'm going to go 2020s. Oh, dear. That's not the right answer, but I'll accept it. And finally, Harley or Porsche? Porsche, but generally not a motorhead, not really bothered. But I think if I went on a Harley... My life insurance would pay out a lot quicker than going in a Porsche. Well, as I often make the offer to podcast interviewees, we do have Martin Clark, who's, as, as you may know, uh, a global leader at Zurich, who is very, very good, I'm told, on a Harley. And I'm sure if you asked him nicely, he'd take you on the back and you'd be perfectly safe. So I will, I will freeze the fall. Okay, so well done. You got through that pretty well. Now the... The, the final question, and that is knowing what you know today about the world, if you'd not ended up being in insurance, what would you ideally have had a role, knowing what you now know about the world? I still think I'd go back to golf, but it was a huge passion of mine. I went to a, a golfing summer camp in North Carolina when I was 16 years old. and got my handicap down from about 13 to about five, just doing that for two weeks. And, and I love the sport. I love what it's given me, a camaraderie, chance to travel, gorgeous places to play. And it's an enigma of a sport for me. And I think that the, the environment around that would suit me very well. So whether I try to be a, a professional or, or run a club or be something to do with travel in that industry, I think I'd still have gone for that. I think that's the right answer as well. Because I would definitely have loved to have done that if I hadn't ended up doing what I'd done in insurance. So uh, great answer. Mike, you know, I, I can honestly say you are without doubt in my mind, one of the top leaders we have in claims in the marketplace today. I think you are credit to yourself. You're a credit to QBE. I wish you 
a continued, really successful career at QBE. And hopefully our paths will cross again sometime in the near future. But thank you so much for coming on and, and letting me interview you today. Oh, Barry, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. And I really thoroughly enjoyed it, probably more than I thought I would. So I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks, Barry. You're a star. Thank you.